Lord, as we turn our calendars uh, to a new year, Lord, the reality is, is that so many of the things that we went through in 2021 did not magically disappear yesterday. God, many of us still carry large burdens today, pain, confusion, doubt, fear, and even sin. And so, Lord, we gather this morning on the first Sunday of 2022, and Lord, we confess as a body that our hope is not in a new year, but our hope is found in a God who has an endless supply of grace for his people. God, we do thank you and praise you that there is new mercy today. There's new mercy this year, Lord, that you have good things in store for your people. Lord, we do confess that there are so many times that we look to other things, idols, Lord, to satisfy us other things to, to give us an identity outside of you. Lord, we confess that to you. We pray that you'd help us to turn our eyes upon you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Today, we do begin a new journey through the Old Testament book of Daniel. And today, uh, we're just going to look at the first two verses um, because I want to spend the majority of our time kind of setting up this sermon series. I want to provide some background to this book. I want to provide some of the historical context and even to explain why I selected Daniel and why now. If you're familiar with Daniel at all, you know that this book contains amazing stories, like incredible drama. This is a masterpiece uh, filled with just unbelievable accounts of God's power. Uh, if you can remember reading Daniel for the first time, uh, or maybe Daniel was read to you for the first time if you were little, uh, you probably did so with your jaw dropped to the floor in amazement, in anticipation, in, wow, I can't believe this is actually happening. Whether it was because of the crazy dreams that Daniel had to interpret with literally his life on the line, uh, or maybe because of the scene of the fiery furnace, or maybe uh, when King Nebuchadnezzar uh, turn into a beast, an animal, for seven years in order to humble him. That's kind of a crazy story. Uh, or maybe uh, the, the party that King Belshazzar threw, and God literally interrupted that party with his own hand, started to write on the wall a message for him. And of course, who can forget Daniel and the lion's den? These are amazing stories. And what I want to remind us uh, about this morning is that these are all true these are true stories that really happened. And I want to say that to you this morning because sometimes we have a challenge when we come to the Word of God, particularly in the Old Testament, that as we live in 2022 now, so often we can look at the Bible, maybe even these stories in Daniel, and say to ourselves, yeah, those were really nice in children's ministry, or those were nice bedtime stories for me growing up, but I don't know if it's relevant for me today in 2022. You ever feel that way? Like you read some of these accounts and you think, yeah, I knew God worked like that in the past, but I just, I'm not sure if he still works like that today. You know, maybe you're saying to yourself, I'm not in a lion's den. I'm not going through a fiery furnace right now. And what can happen is we can put an unhealthy distance or barrier between us and God's word. And we may never voice that distance, but sometimes we feel it. Sometimes it's there. And sometimes we do doubt if the Old Testament, if the Bible does have relevance and application for us today. 
don't know if we have the courage to admit that today. I'm just going to name it for us, that we do go through times in reading the Bible wondering, what does this have to do with me today? And so because of that, that lingering issue or lingering question, what I want to do is share with us four reasons uh, why we're going to be studying Daniel. You can almost view these as four prayers that I have for us as a church, four hopes that, I, that I'm hoping that God would use our time in Daniel to do in and through our church. All right, here's the first one, first reason, first hope that I have for us is that Daniel will help us to understand that the shifting cultural reality is an opportunity to be embraced, not a movement to be feared. One of the things that we're gonna learn very quickly here in the book of Daniel is that Daniel and God's people experienced a dramatic and rapid cultural change. That they went from living as a nation completely free and autonomous to being taken over by this evil juggernaut of an empire, Babylon. They went from one nation under God to uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar's leadership being taken over by this foreign empire. And it happened fast. Like it happened within just a couple of years and it was incredibly jarring for the people of God. But the reality is, is that we have been going through our own cultural change over the last several of years. I know you know that, I know you feel that, but for many, many decades, there has been a kind of national normative ethic in which biblical Christianity has fit quite well in, that the United States has felt on some level like one nation under God, that being a Christian in this country meant being different but not all that different. The reality is, is that that sense is gone now. And what has replaced it is a new cultural norm where truth is relative, ethics are determined by what you feel or what's inside of you, sexuality and gender are destructively blended, and secularism is not just accepted, but it is celebrated. Like our culture has changed, and it will continue to change, and it's been changing at a very, very fast rate. Again, I know this isn't news to you, but one of the things that's happened because of that is that this type of, of cultural Christianity, this type of comfortable Christianity where you only follow Jesus when it's convenient for you, or this type of maybe incognito Christianity, if you will, has become a shrinking island, and that's really good. That's good news, actually, that that's what's happening. Because if you believe that the Bible is authoritative, if you believe that the ethical standard is set outside of yourself, not based on what you feel, if you believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that salvation is found in Jesus and Jesus alone, what that means for you now is that you will experience increasing amount of conflicts, that relationships, maybe even jobs are at risk now, where committed Christians are pushed to the margin of society. Tim Keller describes it this way in his book, short book, on how to reach the West again. He says, we are entering a new era in which there is not only no social benefit to being Christian, but an actual social cost. 
in many places, culture is becoming increasingly hostile toward faith and beliefs in God, truth, sin, and the afterlife are disappearing in more and more people. Now, culture is producing people for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. Like I think something that's been happening, and Daniel can relate to this, is that we are no longer experiencing the cultural momentum behind us as Christians, where the majority are no longer with us. Where, as one pastor put it, the prevailing wind is no longer at the back of the sails of Bible-believing Christians. In fact, the wind appears to be blowing hard behind the forces of postmodernism and secularism. So now that Christian values are no longer held or even tolerated by the majority, we now find ourselves in a minority position. And that cultural shift that's been happening it honestly can be difficult to accept. I mean, if, if you've grown up in this country where Christianity has been accepted and kind of held up on a pedestal in a good way, what's been happening can be really, really hard. And I think it's led to a variety of responses from Christians. Some are responding with fear at, at what's happening in our country. Some are responding with anger, some confusion, some doubt, wondering where is God in the midst of this? Why is he allowing all of this to happen? Some are almost completely overwhelmed by what's happening. And yet Daniel's gonna help us because Daniel lived through something similar. Daniel is going to help us answer this question, which is so very important. The question is this, what does it look like to live as a Christian in a world in a culture, in a society that does not accept or even like what Christians believe? How do we live out our calling in that type of space? Daniel's gonna help us answer that. But in order for us to get to that question, I think we need to understand that what's happening in our culture is not something to fear, but it's an opportunity to embrace like for us, we should never fear what's happening around us. Sure, we can be sad at what's happening. We can mourn what's happening. But if we are committed Christians who believe in the Bible, fear should never be the dominant emotion within a believer's life. Why? Because we believe in the Bible. Like we believe this is authoritative. We believe that what God has said is true. And what has God said? Well, Jesus said in John, that if you follow me, the world will hate you because the world hated me. Jesus also said, fear not, have peace, for I have overcome the world. And yet there are so many Christians today who are fearful at what's happening in our culture, that they're gripped with fear. They're, they're fearful of what this means for their kids and their grandkids, they're fearful of what this might mean for our religious liberties. They're fearful of what does this mean for the church today? And look, people of God, we need to be reminded that the church has gone through far worse times of persecution and suffering, far worse, and she has done more than fine. She has actually thrived 
throughout times of persecution and suffering when culture goes up against the church of Jesus Christ. Like we need to believe the promise of Jesus where he says, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Like Jesus doesn't break his promises. We have nothing to fear. So what does the world need? This world that is becoming increasingly unstable, increasingly fearful, this world where the, the ethical train continues to run off its tracks, what does the world need? Well, A.W. Tozer puts it perfectly. He says that a scared world needs a fearless church. A scared world needs a fearless church. Why? Because we have an opportunity before us. As the world becomes more and more dark, we have an opportunity to be, as Jesus put it, a city on a hill, a light to the world, pointing people to the only hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And we do that by living lives of boldness, of courage, of, of loves in the midst of this morally declining, fear-mongering, increasingly unstable world around us. This is an opportunity for us to display to the world the hope that is found in Jesus. And Daniel's gonna help us do that. Now, that's not my only hope for uh, this book as we study it, but the second uh, hope that I have, or the second reason why we're studying this is that we need wisdom to know how to live in that type of world. That we need wisdom to know how to live as a Christian in America when America looks more like Babylon than Jerusalem. Right? Daniel is going to help us navigate how to live in a society that's becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. And he's going to show us the need for wisdom. Daniel will help us know how to live out a God-centered trust when you suddenly realize, oh wow, I'm actually an exile now. Like you might've thought that theoretically or maybe theologically you're in exile, because that's what the Bible says. But for many of us, you're starting to actually feel this and experience this. Some of you felt this way over Christmas as you gather with your family and you look around and you say to yourself, I'm the only committed Christian in this room right now. Some of you feel this way at work or at school where sometimes Christianity is mocked, the Bible is mocked. Some of you are sensing a looming cloud of potential challenges in your career, in the public school system, or just in culture in general. Some of you who are, who are in school right now, public or private, some of you, it, it feels weird to be a committed Christian. Some of you are trying to build relationships with your neighbors, and there's no common ground spiritually. There's no common worldview, and it's becoming harder and harder to do so. Look, the question that Daniel will help us wrestle with is what should our relationship be with the world? Should we retreat from the world? Should we reject the world? Should we receive the world? Or should we, by God's grace, help redeem the world? See, one thing that I'm really excited about walking through Daniel, I think he's gonna show us how to draw lines in the sand, how to draw a line between the church and the world around us, what those lines should be how to draw them, and when to draw them, as far as being in this world, but not of this world. We need wisdom to know how to do that. 
And thirdly, another hope I have, and this is at an, an identity level, is that Daniel is going to help us embrace our divine calling as what one theologian calls an engaged alien. An engaged alien. Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary, says this. He says, conservative Christians in America are undergoing a huge shift in the way we see ourselves in the world. We are on the losing side of a massive change that's not going to be reversed in all likelihood in our lifetimes. Christians must adapt to the changed cultural circumstances by finding a way to live faithfully in a world in which we're going to be a moral exception. And I think the way that we do that is by understanding who we are on an identity level as aliens in this world. Now, just to reiterate this point, what's happening in our culture, in our, in our world, can be very disorienting. Okay, I don't want to make it seem like this is easy to kind of quickly adjust to what's happening. As Christianity becomes more and more uncoupled from American culture, it can be really difficult. In, in fact, it's, it's unearthing in some deep identity questions. Questions like, who am I now as a believer in this culture? Or, or what does it mean to be a Christian in a post-Christian world where the moral majority is now the moral exception? And that can be really difficult, really, really hard. I don't want to downplay that at all. But some are going through somewhat of an identity crisis now. And some of that is really healthy because some have a misplaced identity where for some, their first question as they process our culture, as they process decisions, their first question is, what's the American way rather than asking, what's the Jesus way? And so there's a little bit of a misplaced identity where they're asking Maybe what's the Republican way, what's the conservative way, or, or what's the progressive way, what's the democratic way, above what's, what does the Bible say? And if you get that order wrong, that reveals an issue of your identity. You're elevating your earthly citizenship or your earthly identity above your ultimate and heavenly citizenship or identity. I know we get nervous when pastors start talking about politics. So let me be clear. You can hold to strong political convictions that are anchored in God's word, absolutely. But let me encourage you, church. Do not read your Bible through your political lens and draw conclusions from that. But understand your politics, understand your identity through the lens of what the word of God says, so that if your political party disappeared tomorrow, you would not lose hope because the word of God stands forever. See, the book of Daniel will remind us that our primary allegiance is not to a red elephant, it's not to a blue donkey, but it is to the lamb of God that was slain for the sin of the world. And I think understanding and embracing our allegiance to Jesus, living out of that space, directly impacts our identity and calling as what one theologian calls an engaged alien. 
one who is in exile here on the earth, one who understands this world is not my home. This is the identity Peter calls us to embrace and live out in 1 Peter 2. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I think Peter uses that term intentionally here to connect for us our true identity, our ultimate citizenship, and our divine calling. And Daniel does a wonderful job giving us a picture of what an engaged alien looks like. He's going to help us to understand what a Christianity looks like that preserves the distinctiveness of the gospel while also not retreating from our divine calling as citizens, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. And that's a hard tension to manage and to balance as we live out our faith today. In the great chapter known as the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews describes God's people this way. He says that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Look, church, we need to reclaim our role as strangers and aliens on this earth, and it starts with embracing the strangeness of the gospel. It starts with with being equipped to know how to live out kind of the, the weirdness of Christianity, which begins by understanding that you're an alien here on the earth. And what I don't mean by that is by being socially awkward or weird. What I mean by that is that if you have a worldview that is shaped by your heavenly citizenship, you will stand out from the people of this world. You will look weird and abnormal as you process things through this book that was written thousands of years ago, rather than making decisions based on what you feel or based on other cultural values. Daniel's going to help us to know what that looks like and how to live as an engaged alien. And then fourth, the final reason, and I just get so excited about this point, I can hardly take it. The fourth reason is that Daniel is going to help us trust in a sovereign God who reigns over everything and whose dominion has no end. I'm going to give you a hot take this morning. Contrary to popular belief, the book of Daniel is not about Daniel. The book of Daniel is not about this hero of the faith that can inspire the people of God to be daring like Daniel, to be courageous, to be bold like Daniel. That's not the primary reason why we have the book of Daniel. The reason why we have the book of Daniel is to help us trust in Daniel's God. It's to help us to understand that we follow and we obey a God who is completely sovereign and whose reign is supreme and forever long. We're going to see this over and over and over again. And I want to point out just a couple of verses on the front end here before we we jump in over the next couple of months. Chapter 2, verse 20 and 21 says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, 
O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Chapter 4, verse 25, and this is Daniel predicting that Nebuchadnezzar will be turned into a beast for seven years. Tells him why. He says, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Chapter 7, verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Like the overwhelming message of Daniel is not to look at how clever Daniel is, how courageous he is, how wise he is, but to look at God, that the true God reigns. Like human history will be characterized by the rise and fall of men, the rise and fall of kings, the rise and fall of kingdoms, but there is one king, who rules over all. There's one kingdom whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and it belongs to God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Alistair Begg calls us to this. He says that this life will not be easy because there is raging around us a continual and irreconcilable war and neutrality is not an option. Life may get harder Society may get unfriendlier. Faith in Christ may become still more unacceptable and obedience to Christ still more costly. But Jesus reigns and Jesus will return. We may not understand every part of the picture, but stand back and see the broad sweep of it. God has won. God wins. And so we will prevail too beyond the battle that you and I are a part of and must fight well in. Look, we need a God-sized confidence in a post-Christian world. And the message of Daniel repeatedly calls us to trust in the true hero of this story. And it's not Daniel, it's not you, and it's not me. It is God who reigns supreme. So we're gonna see that theme weaving in and out through almost every passage throughout these first six chapters. All right, with that, let's jump in. Looking at these first two verses here, I'm going to try to sprinkle in some uh, historical context and some background that I think uh, is helpful and to understand kind of what's going on during this time period in uh, ancient history. Uh, As I read these first couple of verses, we're immediately hit with bad news, horrendous news, in fact. This is a national crisis that has taken place among God's people in Judah, We have this, again, juggernaut of an empire, Babylon, who comes and and takes over Judah, uh, besieges it. In fact, they did this three different times. And in 586 BC, they completely destroyed Jerusalem and Judah. So we're immediately met with really, really bad news. But in verses three and four, which we'll look at more next week, um, what King Nebuchadnezzar does is he actually takes the best of the best from among God's people, these young individuals, and takes them captive and brings them back to Babylon. Now, he's going to try to indoctrinate them in the Babylonian way, which we'll get to next week. But Daniel is included in that. In fact, Daniel's probably around 15 to 20 years old. 
And what we know about Daniel is he lived through a lot. He saw a ton of action throughout ancient history. Daniel lived throughout the entire Babylonian period and even the time of the Persian dominance. Daniel recorded the the downfall of Babylon, which occurred in 539 B.C., So Daniel lived a long life, a very eventful life. He lived to about 70 or 80 years old. But he also lived through five different uh, Judean kings. Here's just a snapshot of all that Daniel lived through from kind of the the Judah standpoint there. Uh, Five different kings. He saw kind of the, the rise and fall of Babylon. He saw the rise of the Persian Empire. And he saw the destruction of Jerusalem. This is absolutely startling if you're Daniel going through all of these changes in human history. And I think that makes his point about God's sovereignty and his his endless dominion all the more convincing. I think another important piece as far as biblical history goes is that this was a period of great prophetic activity. During this time, the prophet Jeremiah was preaching in Jerusalem So it's very likely that Daniel and even Ezekiel sat under Jeremiah's preaching. The prophet Habakkuk was also doing ministry around this time period. Ezekiel was taken into captivity uh, into Babylon as well. And so, so Daniel's life touches some of the major prophets throughout biblical history and some of the most powerful individuals uh, in human history. And the the character that I want to look at a little bit more this morning is King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to get to know him more uh, in these first couple of chapters. But one thing that you need to know about King Nebuchadnezzar is this dude is a bad dude. Like he is one of uh, the best uh, rulers in ancient history. Like he's extremely competent in what he did. He led Babylon to being this incredible empire to such a degree that after King, Nebuchadnezzar, so excuse me, King Nebuchadnezzar dies, Babylon fades within 20 years, loses its dominance. Persia rise to power in only 20 years. So he might have been a great leader, but probably a bad succession plan as he passed away. Another thing about King Nebuchadnezzar that's important is that outside of the Pharaoh of Exodus, no other foreign ruler is mentioned more than King Nebuchadnezzar throughout biblical history. And during the time of Daniel, he is the most powerful individual in the world. That's important because this is the individual that Daniel goes toe-to-toe with throughout these first couple of chapters. Daniel is trying to, to persuade and to convince King Nebuchadnezzar that his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one true living God. Like as we walk through this, I know it can, it can feel like there is that distance where you read certain names like, oh, yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar, oh, yeah, he's the king. But this guy had all power on the earth. He's the most powerful person, and he put immense pressure upon Daniel to bend his knee to King Nebuchadnezzar and to his gods, and Daniel resisted every single time. Why? Daniel chose allegiance to God because Daniel was utterly convinced that it is God who reigns over all, who is in complete control. That is, again, a huge theme that Daniel actually introduces for us in these first two verses. I don't know if you missed it here, but let's take a deeper dive into these verses, 
Because Daniel, right off the bat, wants us to know that God is in control. All right, verse one, we already read that Babylon uh, took control of Judah. But verse two explains a few more details about what, about what King Nebuchadnezzar actually did. Notice verse two, it says that he took the king of Judah and the vessels from the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his gods, and placed them there. Okay, these vessels were, were very valuable to God's people. They would have been various articles from the temple, so uh, gold and silver, some of the utensils that they used that were very sacred for their temple ceremonies. This is a big deal for the people of God. And what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing there, this is basically a power move. He's basically showing them that your God doesn't reign, my God's reign. I'm going to take these vessels here that are so important to you, and I'm going to put them in the land of my gods, in the house of my gods. These vessels were the signs and the symbols of God's presence and power, and now they had been taken away. All right, this is rock bottom for God's people. Okay, I'm not overstating this at all. This is the greatest crisis that God's people have ever gone through to date. This is a big deal right now because the house of God, this is where God dwelled. The temple is where God's presence was, where God could, could renew them. God could demonstrate his power and his glory. God could lead them and guide them. All of that is taken away. All of that is destroyed. You can almost hear some of the questions. We don't have it in the text, but man, if we put ourselves in their shoes, what are some of the questions that we might ask ourselves that we might not only feel, but we might actually verbalize? I know one question I would ask is, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, have you forgotten about us? Have you forgotten your promises? I mean, on top of this, if you, if you know kind of the Old Testament history here, the vessels were taken to the land of Shinar. Well, Shinar was the place where the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 took place. Tower of Babel, that was the, the episode where, where mankind basically teamed up together and said, we're gonna, we're gonna build the, the largest tower to get to the heavens because we don't need God anymore. We don't need him. It was an act of defiance against, against God. And so Shinar was synonymous with opposition towards God, where wickedness was at home. And now the vessels from the house of God are being taken to that very location. And on top of that, you read verses three and four, and these children, the best of the best, are being taken captive to Babylon. Man, imagine being a parent or a grandparent, watching your children being taken away. Man, that would be some, there's be some honest questions I'd be asking God at that point. I'd be saying, God, if you are truly good, why are you causing our children to now live in Babylon rather than Jerusalem? God, do you know what you're doing? God, there's no way they can survive this. There's no way. They're going to turn their back on faith. They're going to stop following you. They're going to become completely consumed with that kind of culture and that kind of society. God, what are you doing? In fact, Psalm 137 
describes kind of what God's people were experiencing and feeling during this time. It says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And notice this question, it says, how shall we sing of the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's the question, church, that we need to know how to answer. And that is the question that Daniel will help us answer. Because in times of exile, the two most pressing questions that God's people are confronted with are, God, where are you? And is this actually worth it? That when you're in exile, you will be tempted to feel like God has forgotten about his people, which then leads so easily to wondering, is this truly worth it? Like being obedient to God, being faithful to God in the midst of hardship and suffering, is this worth it? Like Daniel knew that, which is why I think in this first chapter alone, we read three different occasions where it says that God gave, God gave, God gave. Not God allowed, not God let happen, God gave. Verse 17, God gave them learning and skill. Verse nine, God gave Daniel favor. Verse two, it says that the Lord gave King Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hands of the Babylonians. Isn't that interesting? In fact, in, in verse two, the word, the Hebrew word there for Lord is not the Hebrew word Yahweh, but it's Adonai, which means ruler, sovereign, owner. You see what Daniel's doing here right from the beginning? Daniel is helping to answer that question in Psalm 137. How can God's people sing God's praise when the land that they're in looks like Babylon and not Jerusalem. Daniel begins to answer that question by saying the way that you sing God's praises, the way that you remain faithful to him is by understanding that God is sovereign and there is none like him. That God is ruling, he is reigning, he has all authority, he has all power, and there is no one like our God. He's trying to help us see that in these first couple of verses, that what happened to God's people didn't happen by chance. This didn't happen outside of God's control. He didn't fall asleep up there on the throne and King Nebuchadnezzar came and marched and God woke up and said, oh no, no, this is messing up my plan. No, this is exactly God's plan. This is exactly what God wanted. God is sovereign. God is control over all things. See, the question of, at least the question I'd be asking if I'm living during this time is, where is God in all of this, Daniel answers. says, God is on his throne. What's God doing then? Well, what God is not doing is he's not fretting. He's not worried. He's not breaking a sweat here. He is sitting comfortably, ruling and reigning with all power and all authority, and his purposes will not be thwarted. Now, does that mean it's always gonna be comfortable for God's people? No. But is God always good and trustworthy? Yes. And Daniel 
over these next six chapters is going to show us how to trust in a sovereign God when in the midst of your circumstances are really, really hard. Let's pray together. God, we are so excited for what you have in store for us as we study the book of Daniel. God, we thank you that, that your word is relevant, that it's not only true, it's not only authoritative, it's not only sufficient, but it speaks into our lives even today in 2022. God, thank you that it's living, thank you that it's active. And Lord, I pray that you would give us an open posture as we look at this book, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, you'd open up our minds, God, that you'd help us to have a submissive spirit to what you have to say to us through the book of Daniel. God, we thank you that you are sitting on your throne, that you are completely sovereign. God, thank you that that is meant to give us a type of security blanket, Lord, for us to trust in a God who has all power. Help us to worship you and praise you because of that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.